Welcome to Killer Serials. This here is Tony Jones. This here is Ryan Parker. And we are wrapping up Bear Town. Ryan, I wept. Wow. Did you? I did. I did. I was captivated by the episode. I didn't I didn't weep. I wept when Peter opens the box of Isaac's things. Let's talk about that. We're diving right in here. Yeah, he's kneeling on the floor of, I mean, it's just an interesting, if we can just start there at the end and then work our way backwards. I mean, he, he's sitting there, he's kneeling in, a, looks like kind of an unfinished basement room. You know, they've, this whole, what do you, what do you think this whole thing takes place in the course of a month? This whole show or two months, probably two months. I think you're right. One of the notes I made was they are terrible unpackers. Yeah. And settlers in because yeah. there's still yeah. paint splotches on the wall and they're moving boxes that have not been put away. And then obviously here, to your point, Isaac's box. Yeah, I mean, they moved to, to Beartown, it seemed like sometime in the middle of the hockey season. And Peter kind of took over the juniors team. He was brought in to remind us all. He was brought in to take over the kind of adult, you know, might be lower level semi-pro team, but it became clear to him they were terrible and the juniors team actually had potential and he nominated himself as coach of the juniors team, took it over, seemed like mid-season, you know, and before we know it, they're in the playoffs and then the championship game. So this all happens rather quickly, which why is why I think, you know, they're probably still unpacked. Correct. The wife obviously immediately got a job as an attorney in the town. And so that was just an interesting setting choice because he's in an unfinished room. You know, it's very yes. disassembled. It's downstairs. It's obviously the entryway to their house from the outdoors. And it's like something in this episode finally broke him open enough to confront his grief at the loss of his son. And I found it honestly very moving. And the fact that the wife and daughter walk in in the middle of that moment and kneel there next to him is very sweet. It did make me think, man, that other kid in that family... He doesn't have a lot going for him, you know, or whatever. He's not really part of the family. He's not part of that scene. Do you know what it made me think about? What? It made me think about the son in Cobra Kai, who you just never see. Yeah. And when he shows up, he's got like a handful of pancakes or something. <laughs> right. Tony, I'm, I'm intrigued by your attraction to or uh, the way in which this scene resonated with you because it didn't land as deeply for me for a couple of the reasons. First off, we never really know enough about what happened to Isaac and the possibility of Peter being responsible for that loss mm -hmm. as opposed to just simply grieving that loss because it seems to hint at that, especially in this episode mm -hmm. when Peter and his wife get into this huge fight. I want to come back to that too, obviously. Yeah. So we're left with a little bit of kind of uh, still some unfinished business and all of a sudden it ends where it's like, okay, we're doing, we're doing like soul work on Peter. Yeah. Oh, by the way, his daughter has also just been raped and almost shot a kid. And she's suddenly leaning around, putting her arm around him in support, mm. which I do. I think the staging of it, as you pointed out, is quite lovely. But it emotionally just didn't mm. land with me. I think one of the okay. things that struck me was him carrying her out of the woods. Yeah, I thought that was quite well done. And it kind of it kind of shook me for a yeah. moment because you had the scene where Matt tries to embrace Kevin on the ice. 
and Kevin pushes him off, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. You don't get to have this moment. And then immediately cut to Peter carrying this, you know, teenage, she's almost as tall as he is, carrying his teenage daughter out of the woods. And I, I thought that was quite lovely there at the end. You know, I did think about you as I was crying watching that scene. And I, what I wondered was if that scene would hit so hard for somebody who doesn't have kids. And I, you know, that's... A, I'll take that. No, that's a sensitive, tender thing for me yeah. to bring up on this podcast with you, but we've been friends a long time. And so hopefully we can yeah. broach that topic. For sure. I think, you know, I have spent nights lying in bed worrying that one of my kids would die. And I think most parents have had those nights. It's it's a terrifying yeah. prospect. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I also have close family members who've, you know, my aunt and uncle have buried two of their four kids, one wow. as a six-week-old wow. and one as a 40-year-old. And mm. it's terrible. And I don't know that you ever recover from that grief. So there was something about that that hit me hard, and I'm sure it's also my stage of life and, and things like that. But you make a good point that how did this become about Peter? And I think there's a critique of this show that's why does this why does it end up being about the middle-aged straight white guy who played in the NHL and his grief? Why isn't it ultimately about the grief of the girl who was assaulted? And, you know, obviously it's, it's following the novel and I did do a little research on the novel and I, I, you know, I have something interesting to share about that in a moment, but, you know, you could say, Wow, well, it's a novel written by a white guy, middle-aged white guy, and and sure enough, the protagonist is a middle-aged white guy. And then even the wife and daughter, who've been through their own trauma, are coming in and consoling the middle-aged white guy. That being said, I do think it's a fair choice for them to, you know, the showrunners to make it that here's this guy who has repressed his grief and we've seen that in earlier episodes and we saw it even mm, in the fight with his wife in this episode yeah and finally something cracks open in him and he has to confront the deep deep sadness he has of l having lost a son tony it's it's interesting what you bring up about how our own life experiences shape the way we engage literature mm -hmm. and television and film and how moments or scenes or dialogue resonate with us. And I do recognize that there is a particular experience in life that I may never have, which I hold that and know that there are certain things I can and can't say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that I can't because I don't know those right. things. And there, and as you've already pointed out, certain elements in stories will land differently with me than you because of those experiences. I think where the show, when addressing the, these issues of like grief or suffering or loss, tragedy, it struggles to name a larger societal problem that manifests itself both on a communal and an individual mm -hmm. level. And I think the bartender tries desperately to name that in oh, this episode. Yeah. If you want to make it about the white guys, then make it about their complicity in this issue. And And she goes so far to almost say, you're complicit in your own daughter's race. Yes. 
She does. Because of your contribution to this environment. Yeah, I mean, what she does is she confronts toxic masculinity at her bar when these two guys come and she tries to separate them and tries to tell one, go back to your mom. And she tells Peter, just take your shot of vodka and get out of here. And there they both kind of recede into the grossest part of toxic masculinity instead of dealing with, yeah, like you say, their complicity in they made people like Kevin. They were people like Kevin. We know that from Peter. He talks at the at the meeting where they're going to vote to fire yes. him ab- yeah. about when he was Kevin's age. He and and his buddy, you know, tossed a kid out in the snow and locked the door behind him, tossed him out naked in the snow. Like they, the toxic masculinity that's part of hockey culture in this small town has gone on from generation to generation. And now, you know, his daughter gets caught up into it. And in some ways, what do you think the bartender is? She's almost like a muse, right? She's almost like in a Greek drama, like a semi-divine being who drops in like deus ex machina and brings some truth from the heavens into the, you know, into the drama. And that's few and far between in this series. And this may be one of, what, a couple of instances where somebody kind of speaks that Mm -hmm. truth. And now, to the writer's credit, they could simply say to us, you know, it would be really fun to talk to them where we choose to show, not tell. Right. Right. And we've seen that uh, toxic masculinity on on display and how it's tearing apart that community, how women will even defend it against their own best interest. Uh, With Megan, again, I think she's a very compelling character in her own Mm -hmm. way. But, you know, it would be neat to read the novel. But here's a case of this kind of collaborative creative process where you have a novel that is a very compelling story. And you can imagine the the pitch, but that could possibly benefit on a wider level from a diverse writer's room or a diverse producing team who could say, hey, let's tease out some of these themes. It would be, you know, is the bartender in the novel, you know, all all these types of things. But yeah, if you want to make it about Peter, then and they do, and they make it about this this complicity as you've as you've called it toxic masculinity. But if you're going to make it about the work that needs to be done on him, I would have liked to seen a little bit more of that with each episode. Yeah, yeah. Because in most episodes, he was so completely and wholly caught up in the hockey yes. aspect of, yeah. of life. It was a rather yeah. dramatic change, even in the course of this episode, because, you know, 30 minutes earlier, he was fighting with his wife, and he was basically saying, we don't know what happened that night. Maybe maybe Maya did have a crush on Kevin. And I got to think that, you know, spinning this forward, that is going to come back to haunt him. Like, his wife is in yeah. her more frustrated moments with him is going to say, you didn't even trust Maya. Like you questioned Maya. You thought, you know, you, you thought maybe Kevin didn't rape her or something like that. I, I did, I will say this and I don't know, I haven't read the novel. I've just read about the novel. This is interesting, Ryan, in the novel, there's a postscript and it looks ahead in time and finds Kevin as you know, a dad in his thirties as a kind of a successful, you know, business guy or whatever, and, and a married father of children. And he is chastened. Basically Maya 
aiming the gun at him changed him. Like he didn't face mm. charges. He wasn't convicted in a court, but she did meet out a punishment upon him by pointing that gun at his head and it changed who he was in some way. At least the article I read about the book, the review I read about the book, he does end up kind of putting that toxic masculinity behind him and moving on with his life in a, in a different way. And he's a, basically he's a better man because Maya pointed the gun at him. Mm. So she does in the, in the novel, the novelist at least gives her some agency in changing Kevin that we don't see in the TV show. There's no, you know, there's no flash forward in the TV show to Kevin as an adult. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you what you made of that specifically regarding Kevin. Yes, she does have agency. She chooses not to become a violator, yeah. to use Sue Hockey's words. She drops the gun and which is a sort of, could you say a sort of forgiveness? A reprieve, at least. A, a repri yeah, and so, you know, Kevin resists his father's embrace. He's admitted to his father in this weird scene later that he did it. And his dad's like, no, we're moving. You don't understand. This is a chance to start over. His stepmother is, oh. I don't think she's going to be around no. for long. <laughs> no. I think Matt's is going to be back on Tinder before you know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the last thing we see of Kevin, which is really an interesting shot, is he's in his father's truck. Yeah. We ultimately see. Yeah. But for a moment, he's behind bars. But they're the bars that are on the back of his dad's truck, not the back of a police vehicle. I thought that was kind of a cheeky little shot choice. Yeah. And... He, they drive away, and, and of course, as they pan out, the moving van is there. And so we know that he's just going to continue on with his life somewhere else. He is going on, and Matt's got away with bribing Amat. And, I mean, there, there are some loose ends in this. Like, I've got a couple things. One is, after Amat gets beat up, for the police still not to press charges against Kevin, when it's yeah. very clear that people are trying to silence Amat and Matt's tried to bribe Amat not to talk, it seems unlikely. But also, as, as I've mentioned before on the podcast, and we've talked about other shows like Rectify, for instance, I myself have been engaged in the justice system, and there's been no justice you know, there there are miscarriages of justice all the time. Oh, that's completely believable. So to me, yeah. it's completely believable based on my own experience. I do want to say this. This is a shortcoming of a subtitled show, is that in that meeting, which I've already mentioned, where they're going to vote on the future of the, the juniors coach, it's very dramatic. It is the high drama point of the entire five episode show i think i think even more than my appointing the gun at kevin which is almost a denouement moment i think the climax is that meeting and the tension continues to rise the tension rises when peter walks in the tension rises when he gives his speech defending his daughter the tension rises even more when maya walks in amat leaves and then comes back and says what he witnessed. But here's the thing. My only, you know, it, it, this is just a function of a subtitled show. There's a lot of over-talking and shouting 
And it was yeah. difficult to tell who was talking. Was Megan, th- this mom, this hockey mom you've mentioned before, was her opinion changing? Because some people flip their opinions right there on the spot in the room after Amat testified to what he'd seen. But it, I just found it difficult to tell at some points who was saying what by you know, reading subtitles and watching. You can tell a little bit in the aftermath of the meeting when people are out in the corridor around the rink and leaving. Some people are talking and they're confronting the guy who's like the president of the hockey association saying, you know, basically, I'm not going to sponsor this team anymore if you fire Peter because that sends the wrong signal about my business or whatever. So we see some of that, like the meeting did, it was a pivot point for a lot of the characters. I just was a tiny bit frustrated with subtitling at that moment. I wish I had spoken Swedish. Yeah, I had that thought as well. And you were, I, we were relying a lot on physical cues, as yeah. you said too, and, and the way people's faces changes, which I thought was notable in that scene and some good acting from the the supporting cast and the background actors. Did you find it believable that Amat would return the money and stand up for yes. Maya? Yeah, I I and I don't want to sound like I'm stereotyping, but there there is this sense that there is this kind of cultural or faith component to their family yeah. and the community. It's already been pointed out in the first episode. Yeah. And for whom, you know, integrity seems to be important. The way his mother talked about how proud his father would have been of him in the last episode. And I thought that this, the believability and the effectiveness of that decision and that moment and that sequence could really be attributed to the acting. I mean, I thought uh, Amat was wonderfully cast. Yes. How quiet and sweet. Yeah. And how much he struggled with that decision because it was like... to, to your point, there was real incentive for him not to tell the truth. And you just, I, I love to see it. I love to see him struggle with that decision to walk away, to come back, and then just quietly to say yeah. to Matt's, here's your money back. I don't want it. Yeah. And to quietly say, to speak the truth of what he saw to that room with a, a kind of a calm. Well, Ryan, let me just say before you jump ahead, not only quietly, but the filmmakers fade out his voice so you can't even hear him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he literally is silent. He's a silent witness yeah. because you don't hear his testimony. You just see his lips moving and the music comes up and you see the people's faces. Yeah. And I thought that was very effective. Yes. Agreed. And also just to stick with his integrity, he could have just gone inside with his mother and he goes to to see these guys, I think, because he knows he's like, well, I'm going to have to take a beating one way or the other, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and there was something very mm, sacrificial in that. There's yeah. something you sent me a <laughs> screenshot of the cross, yeah. which was a little foreshadowing. And then even and let's be realistic about it, how hard it is to to stand out or apart from a mob. Yeah. And, and especially when that mob mentality takes over, Bobo is, is faced with the decision that he ultimately, although a little too late, but puts himself in harm's way to stand up for what he knows is right yeah. and finds himself in the hospital. He's not going to press charges, you know, Mott's in the hospital. So, yeah, I just, you know, you I, I wondered, honestly, and I think it's a mark of a good show and in, in good direction. 
you know, I was wondering up until the moment, is he going to go back inside? Yeah. You know, because of the weight of the bribery, the situation he and his mother were in, you could see him just simply walking out of that meeting. Yeah. I mean, another way Amat could have done it is he could have left the meeting and he could have just gone to the police and made his statement there, Mm -hmm. not confronted the Mm -hmm. whole community. It wouldn't have been nearly as dramatic. Okay. Last question for you. What did you make? And I wish I, I can't remember this character's name, but the gay hockey player. Benji. What's that? Benji. Benji. What did you think of, toward the end, the homoerotic moment that Kevin and Benji have before Benji gets up and leaves Kevin and basically says, you know, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. (laughs) Yeah. couple things there. And I don't know that I have a definitive answer, more of like feelings or questions, but I look at Benji a little bit like I regard Peter and Isaac. Yeah. There's just a lot that's unsaid that we're, we're forced to kind of speculate. So that's, that's one critique. I was very uh, compelled or intrigued by Benji's character. Here's this person who has, you know, still waters run deep, right? He's got, it seems like he has some emotional intelligence, but he's stunted in his ability to express that. We see this in the previous episode with his lover, you know, or a boyfriend or or hookup, random hookup, who comes to the hospital to pick him up and Benji completely alienates him and he can't understand why anybody would love him. Well, what I don't know what Benji's been through to make right. him feel that way. And here we find in this episode, he is, in a way, pouring his heart out to Kevin. There has been some sort of connection, physical connection between the two of them yes. in the past. We learned that in the first episode, or there's a reference to that in the first episode. What that looked like, how far that went, who knows? There was clearly alcohol involved. I just think it's another, I think it's this kind of parallel with Amat, where Benji is just sees the moment speaks truth to Kevin, unlike everybody else around Kevin, right? Who's like, oh, he didn't do it, even his own father. So for me, it was just another one of those moments, somebody who cares, clearly cares about Kevin, telling him you don't get it. And I, you know, the the hug, that embrace, I, I don't quite know what to make of that, but other than maybe Kevin can only respond to something physical like that, that it take it takes something like that to break through. I I don't know what you make of it. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I like you. It it seemed very powerful and emotional, but it's almost like you think was there an earlier scene in episode one or two that was cut? You know, you think like here's an example, probably in the novel, mm. if they had a sexual encounter, or even if they kissed in a drunken state or whatever, or if Kevin was the only person who knew Benji's gay on the team, or something that I guess laid the groundwork for their intimacy, you would then be Mm -hmm. like, oh, and here they are, you know, one, they have this one last brief moment where they're fighting slash embracing and then they separate. And, you know, then in the novel, of course, they never saw each other again, or you can, you can write stuff like that in a novel you can't put in a TV show. So again, I, I thought very, it was powerful, but I don't know if I, if there was enough foreshadowing of it to make me convinced of what a meaningful moment it was to those two boys. That's all. Yeah. It felt like it was more an attempt to wrap up Benji's storyline than it was to say anything along those lines of what you're, what you're hinting at. One last thing, one piece of dialogue. And I really appreciated it because of the setting of the whole series 
we've talked about the small town, kind of the culture of, you know, there around hockey, masculinity and the whole thing. When they go to the meeting, Peter's wife says, oh, it's like we're back in the Middle Ages, yeah. <laughs> you know, a public hanging. And you just think we're, no, we have not changed. No, we're still right. the same. The yeah, same people yeah. we were. And Renee Girard, and and Renee Girard <laughs> would watch this show and say this town is crying out for blood Absolutely. and they need a scapegoat. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the town literally does. I mean, the, the town drunks are running Maya off the road. Yeah, that's right. right? They literally run her right. into the woods. Yeah. yeah. And Peter is yeah. literally bleeding because yeah. he's the scapegoat for the team's loss. You know, this kind of thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, gosh, we way to uncover that at the last second. I'm glad of- <laughs> you I'm glad you picked this show for us to watch. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think we got something special coming up with I think we're gonna watch we're gonna one off watch a movie and we're gonna have the writer and lead actor in the movie on with us. So uh, we'll tease it out. We're we gonna tease this. You know what, what it is. We've what talked is this? about it, bro. Oh yeah, I just remembered. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody, for listening.